Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. The current series is Women Who Seized Power, and this is episode 2.6, Rana Valona I, Queen of Madagascar. Rana Valona is the only woman in this series that I did not know about before I began researching the series. She's also the only one who ruled over a country I admit I know better from nature shows than from history classes. For most of the women in this series, the problem was choosing between too many biographies. For Rana Valona, I was only able to get my hands on one. It's called Female Caligula, Rana Valona, Madagascar's Mad Queen, which tells you everything you need to know about the author's angle on the subject. I would love to have read a revisionist biography, one where it turns out that she was sweet, sensitive, and reports of tens of thousands of bodies were greatly exaggerated, but I don't think it exists. Even if it wasn't revisionist, a biography with serious documentation or an awareness of what racial terms are no longer considered acceptable would have been good too. My point is that if you've always dreamed of getting a history PhD and were just waiting for the right dissertation topic to come along, you have now found it. There is plenty of room for further work on Rana Valona. While we wait for your dissertation to come out, though, we'll make do with what we've got. The Marina tribe hailed from the central highlands of Madagascar, which is to say, the least important part. Terrain was difficult. Resources were few. But when the Marina ancestors arrived from Southeast Asia, the better places in Madagascar were already taken, so there they were, in the central highlands. By the late 1700s, the Marina began expansion, under the leadership of a king whose name I am not even going to attempt to pronounce because it has a mouth-watering 23 syllables and I'll probably break a tongue joint. I'll post it on the website. You can try it. When Rana Valona entered the world in about 1787, she was no one of consequence, even within the Marina tribe. But her father just happened to find out about a plot to kill the king. He turned the plotters in, saved the king's life, and in return the king did two things. He adopted Rana Valona as his own daughter and betrothed her to the crown prince, Radama, giving her children a double claim to the throne. Her children were specifically designated as the future rulers of the tribe. Only she didn't have any children. She was 22 when she married Prince Radama. He was six years younger and already kept a harem of wives. Rana Valona was not a favorite. She also had no particular reason to like him, since he ordered the execution of several of her close relatives, but who knows if that was causation or just correlation. The point is, there were no children. Radama had other difficulties, too. At this time, both England and France were totally obsessed with imperial expansion. Both wanted Madagascar. Both were overcommitted elsewhere. To make a complicated story short, Britain supplied Radama with guns and military training. He used them to conquer all the other tribes until he was truly king of Madagascar. In return, he kept the French off, closed the slave trade, and allowed Christian missionaries. He might have had a long and powerful reign. Instead, he died young. By the traditional Marina rules of matrilineal descent, pretty cool, matrilineal descent, the heir apparent was Prince Rakatobi, the son of Radama's eldest sister. However, if a widow gave birth, that child was considered a legitimate child of the dead husband with full inheritance rights, no matter how long after the child was born, which meant that any child Rana Valona might ever bear to any father would have not just a legitimate claim to the throne, but the very best claim 
to the throne. So good job for providing for the children of widows in general, but in the case of royalty, nothing could have been more dangerous. Was there any chance that Rakutobi would not see her as a threat? Not likely. He couldn't afford to risk it. For Rana Valona, there were only two choices, die or seize the throne herself. If we've learned any basic principles in this series, it's that a woman planning to seize power needs military friends. And Rana Valona had those. Two colonels of the army were from her home village. They swore oath to her in secret. They persuaded the chief priests and judges to join them. The next day, the general of the army was summoned to the palace and asked politely for his oath on pain of death. He gulped and gave his oath. And that was that. On August 1st, 1828, Rana Valona was queen of Madagascar at a total cost of four deaths from officers who refused to realize what was good for them. But the body count didn't stay at four. Rakatobi had to go, obviously, and his father, and his mother. Actually, very few members of the royal family escaped. The British were dismayed. Rana Valona refused to recognize the treaties Radama had signed. She lost the British subsidy, but that was okay. She could revive the slave trade, which they had insisted Radama close down. Slavery had been a major part of the marina economy. Not so much because they used the slaves themselves, though they did, but because when times got lean or neighbors got uppity, they sent out the army, put down any tribes that proved troublesome, and sold them off-island. They thus settled the rebellion, confiscated assets, and got a cash payment for doing so. The marina economy boomed. I imagine the other tribes were not quite so pleased. If you had moral squeamishness, you probably didn't want to say so and risk an accusation of treason. The judicial system, if you want to call it that, was trial by tanguena. The tanguena was a poisonous local shrub. If you were accused of a crime, you were given a meal of rice, three pieces of chicken skin, and a crushed seed of tanguena. The seed made you throw up, and you better hope you threw up a lot, because your innocence was proved by the reappearance of all three pieces of chicken skin. Should you cough up only one or two, you were obviously guilty and hauled away for execution. Rana Valona specialized in particularly creative executions. It was an art form. While the British fumed, the French decided that their time had come at last. In 1829, their fleet arrived on the East Coast. They sort of attempted to negotiate, but Rana Valona did not respond, and by October 10th, the ships began bombarding the town of Tamatave. The marina were hardened warriors, and the French expected a good fight, but they got lucky. One of their early shots struck the ammunition stocks in the fortress, and the marina army fled from the explosion. Full of confidence, the French sailed further around the coast and attempted the same trick, and got slaughtered for their pains. The victory bolstered Marina confidence, including Rana Valonas. Her troops had encountered the invincible French and won. Madagascar was still free. The problem was, could it remain free? Rana Valona dominated Madagascar by a simple policy. Attack the other tribes, sell them into slavery, use the money to buy European weapons, repeat. It all hinged on the European weapons. Politically, she was independent. Economically and militarily, she was tied. Not good enough. The solution to her problem washed up on shore in 1831. Jean Laborde was 26 years old, with a backstory so fantastic it sounds fictional. 
But actually, if this were fiction, you'd probably shut it down in disgust because it's so unbelievable. Laborde spent his youth in a French village learning to be a blacksmith. But the life of a village tradesman was boring, so he joined the army. But the country was at peace, and army life in peacetime is boring. So he spent what money he had on a chest full of trinkets and a one-way ticket to India. In Bombay, he stood juggling on the streets. People came to watch, and then he talked them into buying a trinket. He grew rich and realized that the life of a well-established merchant is boring. So he sold up, bought a ship, hired a crew, and set out to find the legendary treasure of Mozambique Channel, which is how he ended up stranded and penniless on Ranavalona's shores. His rescuer, or his captor, whichever one you want to call him, marched Laborde to Antananarivo and presented him to the queen as a new slave. It was a major stroke of luck for Ranavalona because Laborde knew how to make muskets and gunpowder. Those blacksmithing lessons as a kid came in handy. It was not long before he was fulfilling all the duties expected of him, including the more amorous ones. He is generally considered to be the father of her one and only child. You've got to wonder what he thought about slavery and his change in fortunes, but you have to admit that boring doesn't seem quite the right word. It is difficult to overstate the importance of Ranavalona's use of Laborde. Throughout the period of European imperialism, native peoples around the world struggled to cope with the fact that the Europeans had far superior weaponry. They could only buy what the Europeans were willing to sell, and only at the prices the Europeans were willing to accept. What they needed was their own independent source of good weapons. Ranavalona was one of the very, very few native monarchs who managed to achieve it. She gave Laborde everything he asked for, and he provided her with the Industrial Revolution, at least in its military aspects. Muskets, cannon, shells, grenades, everything. Having assured their military dominance, there was time for the finer things in life. Ranavalona's new palace atop the highest crag of Antananarivo was said to be the largest timber building in the world at the time. Later on, Laborde oversaw the building of Black Versailles, a stone town in the European style where the court could retreat and relax. He also manufactured false flowers, which became the fashion sensation at court. Slave he might be, but hardly a typical one. He was becoming rich again. Meanwhile, Rana Valona disliked the presence of Christian missionaries in her country and the number of her subjects who converted. She also worried about sea power. She had weapons to contend with a land invasion, but what if the Europeans simply bombarded her by sea? In 1836, she sent envoys to England and France. They had two jobs. First, to find out just how upset they were about the recent persecution of Christians, and second, to convince them to recognize her as Queen of Madagascar. The meetings were polite on all sides, but got nowhere. Ranavalona was actually urged to accept Christianity herself, and no one acknowledged her title. Ranavalona was not pleased. If Britain and France would not recognize her, there was no reason to continue to appease them. Tolerating Christians was a thing of the past. The punitive military expeditions stepped up. Some of her desperate subjects reached out to the French governor of Réunion, and he was only too obliged for an excuse to step in. He sent a fleet. Malaria finished them off. Another victory for Rana Valona, and she didn't even have to do anything. By 1845, Rana Valona had been on the throne for 17 years. 
she determined to make a triumphal procession throughout her realm, and the court would make it with her, and all their slaves. Fifty thousand people made this procession. Since Madagascar had virtually no roads, the road was built during the procession, with crews working frantically so as to stay a day ahead of her. Ten thousand people are said to have died building this road, from overwork and poor living conditions. The court also provided no food. Fifty thousand people were expected to shift for themselves, which means that they commandeered what they needed from the protesting locals. They were more like a marauding army than anything else. Also in 1845, Rana Valona revoked any privileges previously granted to Europeans and made them subject to Malagasy law. She doubled her prices for exported cattle to Réunion and Mauritius. When the island sent troops to object, she slaughtered them and stuck their heads on poles in the port. When they sent a more placating embassy asking for the resumption of trade, she said, sure, just pay a hefty fine and admit you were wrong to send a fleet. Trade did not resume. Jean Laborde, now famously wealthy, began to worry. Thus far, he had escaped any anti-European ire, presumably because he was so valuable, but he had to be aware that Ranovalona was growing older and possibly mentally unstable. A single word from her and his life would be over, and not painlessly, because that wasn't how she did things. The great conspiracy was spearheaded by Laborde and a few friends. Together, they persuaded Prince Rakoto, Ranovalona's son, probably by Laborde himself, to sign a letter asking the French government to become the protector of Madagascar. Had Ranovalona known about it, heads would have rolled, along with various other body parts. But nothing came of it. France was busy. Meanwhile, the persecution of Christians ramped up. Thousands were killed, including pregnant women and children. The methods varied, burning, crushing, boiling, flaying, starving, hanging, etc. The accounts of Christian missionaries and refugees are among the best sources available on Ranovalona, and they are definitely not flattering. They had a grievance, and that should be taken into account when judging the truthfulness of what they said, but even if only half of it is true, well... Let's just say, I'm sparing you the grisly details. In 1853, the British were ready for another attempt. They landed at Tamatavi and said, Please, please, could we resume trade? They were informed that the Queen was still mad about the attack in 1845, and she still wanted compensation. The British whipped out their account books and decided that finance ruled the day. The fine was paid, and trade resumed. For them, it was a simple business transaction. Do the totals add up? Great, go ahead and pay it. For Rana Valona, it was the cherry on the top of total victory. They had attacked, she had trashed them, and now they had admitted their guilt and paid for it. Her prestige rose enormously. She celebrated by allowing the locals to remove the heads that had now been hanging on poles in the port for eight years. New trade brought an influx of new foreign merchants, including a Frenchman named Lambert. He had been in and out, but in 1857 he arrived again, which is mostly important to us because he brought a celebrity with him. Ida Pfeiffer was 60 years old, had been round the world on a shoestring budget, having all sorts of adventures like almost getting eaten by cannibals, and then publishing bestsellers about it afterwards. Now she wanted to go to Madagascar, and Lambert provided the transport. Pfeiffer was unaware that Lambert was up to his eyeballs in the next iteration of Laborde's Great Conspiracy. When her ignorance was relieved, she was horrified to find herself guilty by association. They were planning a coup. 
What if the queen found out? A queen who was known to kill twenty to thirty thousand of her own people annually. And yet Ida could not leave. Not without permission of the queen, and anyway, on whose ship would she leave? Lambert was not going anywhere. Pfeiffer writes of her total abject terror inside, while on the outside she was smiling and attending balls. One day, officers pounded on her door, demanding entry. Pfeiffer opened it, expecting to be arrested. Instead, she was informed that the queen had a piano. Pfeiffer was said to know how to play it. She was ordered to give a piano recital immediately. Trembling, Pfeiffer followed them to the palace and an out-of-tune piano with half the keys broken. She had given up music lessons thirty years before. I think it is safe to say that this may have been the most nerve-wracking piano recital ever, which just goes to show that, yes, you should have practiced more when your mother told you to. You never know when a homicidal queen might demand an immediate performance. Rana Valona listened, stony-faced, while Pfeiffer thumped away at part of a waltz and anything else she could dredge out of the memory banks. Then she was led away again and told the queen had enjoyed it. Good job. Well done. Back in her quarters, Pfeiffer collapsed in relief. Finally, all was ready for the coup. Until, on the night of, the conspirator in charge of opening the palace gates simply refused to do it. Just point-blank refused. Game over. And the conspiracy died. Rana Valona wins again. Pfeiffer suspected that Rana Valona knew all along. She had spies. She may have known she had nothing to fear. They waited for her anger to descend. They were not charged, but they were kept in house arrest. Ultimately, Rana Valona merely banished them, including Laborde, who had spent 26 years in her service. Pfeiffer was both astonished and delighted. Where was the terrible, crazy queen who killed thousands of her own people? But it's possible that Rana Valona was more than a little devious. Killing the foreigners outright might have irritated the Europeans. There might have been questions. Banishing them was completely reasonable. No need to keep foreigners around if they caused trouble. Everyone understood that. And was it her fault that the journey from Antananarivo to the port was so dangerous? The answer to that is almost certainly yes. The military escort lodged the Europeans in disease-ridden swamps, delayed for unexplained reasons, forbade any doctor to treat them, and refused all bribes for better treatment. The trip should have taken a week. It took 53 days. Everyone survived but only barely. It is hard to believe that the escort went to this kind of trouble without explicit orders from the queen. Two years later, Pfeiffer died of the disease she contracted on this journey. Maybe Rana Valona's mercy was actually just another creative execution. Rana Valona herself died peacefully in her sleep on August 15, 1861. She ruled for 33 years with brutal efficiency and successfully kept her country independent during a time of rampant European imperialism. As I mentioned before, I have some concerns about the one and only biography of Rana Valona that is readily available in English, but if you would like to check it out, you can find a link at my website, herhalfofhistory.com. As always, many thanks to my followers on Facebook, Twitter, the website, and all the different apps. Next week, I'm going to wrap up this series with a retrospective look at what the five women we've covered accomplished, forming a sort of Girl's Guide to Seizing Power, where I'll give you step-by-step instructions for your next hostile takeover based on solid historical sources. I hope you'll give it a listen. Thanks. Hello, everyone. 
My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.